Welcome, proud members of the present, to another episode of the Primalosophy Podcast. I'm your host, Nick Horderbaum, and this episode is brought to you by UFF, the Firefighter Wellness Program on a mission to make the best job in the world a healthier one. Go to primalosophy.com slash UFF to get started. Today I'm speaking with Adam Hart. He's an entomologist and professor of science communication. He's the author of Unfit for Purpose, which we're going to talk a lot about today. He's a regular broadcaster for both Radio 4 and the BBC World Service, including documentaries such as Inside the Killing Jar and Big Game Theory. He's also presented science and action for the BBC World Service. And on TV, Adam has co-presented several documentary series, most notably BBC 4's Planet Ant. Adam, welcome to the show. Thank you. All right, Adam, why the blind watchmaker over the selfish gene? <laughs> yes, you saw my you saw my book, my, my book recommendations. Well, I guess I think it's part, partly a personal thing. Um, I remember reading the selfish gene when I was quite young and probably too young to really understand it. I was I was I think I was about 12 and trying to kind of feel clever and I, I didn't really get to grips with it. And so I, I, I tended to put it to one side. And then just before I went to university, everyone was saying, oh, you've got to read some Dawkins before you go to you know, university to study biology. And I kind of looked at what was out there and everyone was saying, oh, you know, this, you've got to read the selfish gene. And I just had that memory of reading it and, and not really getting on with it. So then I, I picked up The Blind Watchmaker, which which I really do think is a, is a better introductory book, actually. And um, and so, yeah, that's the kind of the kind of history there. And then I, I went on actually then to read the extended phenotype and some of his other books and went back to the selfish gene relatively recently. Actually, it's quite um, yeah, so it's been a, an interesting journey with my Dawkins books. Absolutely. I wish I would have picked up the blind watchmaker before the selfish gene. Numerous times I tried to read it and couldn't make my way through it. Yeah, it's um, I, I just I found I still find it actually a more difficult book, and it's not necessarily because of the um, the content. I think Dawkins gets much much more into how he wants his written voice to sound um, mm. once he gets through some of his later books. And I think with the blind watchmaker, you can kind of read it and and it feels more like someone's talking to you. Whereas I think the selfish gene has more of a sense of a sort of almost an academic piece of work that isn't quite isn't quite an academic piece of work so i think he i think he just finds his voice a bit more as a writer later on and before we get into unfit for purpose i'm curious how you got involved in conservation and trophy hunting in africa <laughs> yes um so one of my one of my research interests i've been I've been taking students down to south africa for about well nearly 10 years now um and we run uh, together with some colleagues of mine we run various different conservation research projects there through uh, various different groups looking at all kinds of things actually looking at uh, vegetation management and looking at um, surveying and monitoring and so on and spent quite a lot of time in the field in that part of Africa both South Africa and, and also Namibia Botswana around around sort of that area Zambia and so on and really seen firsthand some of the the value if you like of, of, of that form of conservation it was it was a long journey for me I first came across trophy hunting on my very first trip to Africa actually in 2001 and mm. I gotta say I was pretty appalled um, I had no idea I just I'd done a degree on you know biology and conservation I was avidly reading around and I watched every David Asimov documentary going and I'd never never come across this before um, I thought it was quite shocking but equally I had also just spent some time in Malawi where I was expecting to see lots of wildlife and hadn't um, driven down a very long road surrounded with agriculture for hours and hours and hours didn't see all the wildlife I was hoping to see mm -hmm. got into this property which was a huge I mean they call it a farm but it's an enormous tract of land and the place was teeming you know not just with with the sort of African wildlife you expect to see but also all the African wildlife you don't expect to see all the birds the insects the flowers you know the plant life that was incredible and I kind of it was that thing of like it was almost an epiphany and I kind of said to the guy this is amazing you know everywhere we've seen there's been no wildlife but there's wildlife here you know what how, how can you have wildlife here and also you're calling it a farm but you know where are the crops in the field and the guy was very patient with me and and talked me through the fact that the reason why they had wildlife and, and habitat there was because the wildlife there had value and that value came from from hunters and they had a number of quite um rich uh, african uh, american clients that would go and hunt all sorts of species and and as a consequence to that they were supporting all these families and and it was it, it took me a while to kind of get to get to grips with the whole thing um but i realized of course that as i was having this conversation with him i was eating a, an eland roast actually um particularly kind of uh, a large antelope that lives in in southern africa and we were eating it and suddenly all these things kind of fall into place and you realize that it was a, it was a realization actually that the world was a more complex place than I had originally thought, and that I'd been taught actually. Um, so yeah, I started reading a lot more about it, and then and then taking sort of 
students down and, and getting involved. I did a BBC documentary about it just after the, the sort of Cecil story. Mm-hmm. And, and now I do quite a lot of, um, you know, quite a lot of writing about it and sort of talking about it really to just to, to show people actually, I mean, it's, a, we're fighting against the tide from the media, but just to show people that actually um, it is a rather more complex story than many people say. But of course, against the background of that, you have, um, you know, you, you, you have the, the fact that people are willing to pay to go and hunt. And I think a lot of people, find it difficult to get their head around that and none of this is easy i guess is a, is a tanko message so it's my understanding that the wildlife provides the landowners with income yeah that's exactly right and it's and it's really when you think about it it's, it's both more complex and actually incredibly simple and i can see it out of my window now so i used to have a lovely field just uh, just outside of me running up to some woods and now i have a small housing estate running up to some woods and the simple fact is that that land even though it was quite nice and attracted lots of birds and was a very pretty thing to look at had more value to that landowner with housing on it as residential housing than it did either as farmland or as basically wildlife habitat and and we see this all over the world and and what happens in these areas of Africa which are vast by the way I mean we're talking about over a million and a half square miles just in southern Africa alone and eastern Africa um, you know that land has more value in for example um, for logging or for farming or agriculture of other forms or for development for dams and so on and if that wildlife isn't paying its way then unfortunately people tend to find other other things to do with the land and that's just the nature of it It happens here in the uk i'm sure it happens where you are it certainly Mm -hmm. happens in in africa and other places that i've been to and and you're right it's it's that it's that giving value but of course you know we we can sit in quite privileged position quite often and think about well we value wildlife intrinsically it's a lovely thing to have well yes it is but you know um you still have to feed yourself and you still have to look after your family and you still have to have some form of development and, and some sustainable income and and actually when it's properly managed as it is in a great many places actually um it can provide that sustainable um, income and it can provide habitat protection and despite what we see almost constantly in the media um, trophy hunting is not currently a threat as far as we can tell to any species on the planet Mm-hmm. Um, it simply isn't. So I think you know it's a, it's an interesting it's an interesting one, and I've become increasingly kind of involved in the sort of media side of it, looking at, for example, the the use of false information, um, which we've got some papers coming out over the next few months on, and and various other aspects. It's it's been it's it's interesting to stand aside from it, but also you know I spend a lot of time in that part of the world, and you know I know people that are involved in in managing properties and managing habitat and conserving different species. And, and a lot of people are tearing their hair out, unfortunately at the moment, because, because the, the very simple message is getting out there. And, and, you know, that's not just the case with conservation. Of course, it's, we see it the case with all, all sorts of issues, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, we're very good at grasping simple things. We're very good at, you know, as I talk about in the book, actually about confirmation bias and so on, you know, if something reinforces what we already think, we tend to go with it and think that it's amazing. And then we get this halo effect of the people telling us what's going on. And we can see that actually in a huge number of issues at the moment. So yes, it feels a little bit like fighting against the tide, but we have to try. When we remove emotion from the trophy hunting narrative, just talking about facts, how much land is used for trophy hunting? And is this the best option to protect the land? Well, at the moment, um, the, the current estimates are just in southern and eastern Africa, which is where most of the focus is, although actually this happens throughout um, the United States, for example, areas of Pakistan, Nunavut up in Canada. I mean, it's, 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 not a, it's, it's not just an African thing, but yeah, about one and a half million square miles. Is it the best? Well, the, the, biggest, the biggest problem here is that, um, so a very large report was, came out fairly recently looking at over 130 different types of alternatives and land uses. And their overwhelming conclusion was that currently for most of the area we're talking about, the only two players in the game are really trophy hunting and ecotourism. Now the biggest, or tourism in general, um, but that tourism isn't a panacea to quote that report because the, the big issue with, with tourism is that, that tourists are very demanding actually generally. Um, they have quite a large carbon footprint, they want infrastructure, they usually want luxury, they don't generally want very long journeys from airports and so on. Um, they usually want roads, they usually want new vehicles, they usually want English speaking guides and so on. And, and it can work incredibly well when it works. It can be very bad when it doesn't work and it can cause all kinds of issues. Likewise, um, hunting land uses, um, when they don't work properly, when they're not regulated properly, they can also cause problems. You know, none of this is, is, is easy. Yeah. Um, but it's those two that, that constantly come out, unfortunately, at the top of the heap at the moment. I say unfortunately because I don't think either of them are particularly great. Um, and we've seen the vulnerability, of course, with COVID. Um, uh, both 
hunting use and tourism are massively vulnerable to um, foreign whims. And in this particular case, that foreign whim is, is an inability to be able to travel to those areas and provide the funding. So, you know, none of these things, sadly, I, I, I don't think in 50 years time, it would be very sad were we still having this conversation. We need to come up with better ways to, to give that land value and to, to make it long-term sustainable for wildlife. Or we simply accept the fact that wildlife will only exist in, in fenced off national park areas and, um, and, and won't exist outside of it, which is of course the situation we find in lots of other places. So it is, a, it is yeah, it's a, I think we've reached a very important point actually both both in this debate really and in, in terms of how we're viewing the planet we, we do seem to be at this sort of juncture where we're kind of sitting around and realizing that we're going to need to do things a bit differently moving forward if, if we want to to right some of the wrongs and, and have a better system it's I guess I guess the current crisis actually might have given us pause to pause to the thought for that but it'll be yeah, it'll be interesting to see whether or not uh, we are still having this conversation in 20 years or 30 years time. So the uncomfortable reality and the real value of trophy hunting is that it keeps that land protected for wildlife and provides income as well. Yes, and and that is that, that is basically the, the unfortunate fact of it. And and it does provide income. You'll see lots of people saying it provides no benefit to local people at all. Um, actually, those local people are rarely listened to and their voices are becoming becoming more... Uh, becoming louder now but yes that is basically that is basically it and i don't i, I think many people would i mean certainly i i can't imagine that we would start from scratch now and go i know how we can preserve this habitat uh but equally it is a system that is working in in many places and yeah i think uh, we, we need to be very careful over, over the coming years that we don't allow emotion and people's I think inability to separate their emotional involvement towards single animals with a wider ecosystem and habitat and also people-based approach. Mm -hmm. I think when you confuse those two things, you can make the very complex become very simple and obvious. And as we, we know in many, many places, simple and obvious solutions to things, they often aren't the ones that actually end up working. So yeah, uh, some care is definitely needed. Is it true that throughout evolution, we were the ones on the menu? I mean, does archaeological evidence suggest that early hominins in Africa were more hunted than hunter? Yes. Um, yeah. And in fact, I, I did a, a Radio 4 documentary on this quite recently, and I'm looking at sort of writing this up in a, in a, a more formal way. But yeah, um, this is the idea of sort of man that hunted. And um, in actual fact, we, we've got this lovely clamorous idea, don't we, of, a, of a sort of majestic hunters bringing down mammoths with kind of a spear and a smile and actually you know the reality is that that we were probably much more likely prey than predator uh, meat was certainly a component of our early diet but so was an awful lot of other things um and that meat wasn't necessarily uh, the sort of glamorous end of it you know we were probably probably just as just as partial to a bit of rat and and rodent as we were to to antelope and and at the time that we were sort of at that, that sort of three million period three million years ago or so where things were really starting to, to happen for us there were more predators around particularly in the east african systems where we were than there are now including a large number of, of saber-toothed cats um some pretty scary sounding hyenas pretty much like a hyena the size of a lion um and all of those would have been i suspect very partial to um to, to man flesh or woman flesh because Although we are quite a handy physical unit and we are pretty good and we can work together very well if we're on our own and we don't have access to tools and weapons, um, we are not going to fare very well against a, a large a large carnivore. And certainly if you've ever seen a, a lion um, hunting or you've ever seen one of those sort of stop motion kind of photographs where the lion is kind of fleeing through the air and it's got itself dragged around half a half a wildebeest and you see the <laughs> you see the sinew and the, the muscle tension on that thing you, you realize that that you don't have a chance against a predator like mm. that and of course some people think that that was one of the things that drove us towards a much more social way of life because in order to overcome that working together and, and communication and all those sorts of things would have been very very valuable um, the pressure you know those sorts of disentangling those evolutionary aspects of our early life is, is quite an interesting one and then something seems to vex a lot of people a lot of the time but yeah as we get more and more fossil evidence and more and more yeah. of an idea of that period then i'm sure we'll get more of a clearer picture so we were spending much of our lives scavenging for food and fending off attacks yeah. from saber-toothed cats and giant hyenas yes i um, i interviewed uh, alice roberts who's uh, an anthropologist and a uh, a broadcaster hear about it and, and she sort of said yeah, yeah we might be quite good at running but when you think about it we're also really good at climbing trees 
and and we've retained that sort of the, the you know reasonable upper body strength and, and the ability to to sort of drag ourselves out of trouble and you know she she was sort of intimating that actually part of our our sort of physical frame and stature now and, and the way that we are is, is possibly <laughs> possibly to do with climbing and running away from these things as well which is yeah it's kind of like it, it's it's a bit of a reset isn't it from our from our thoughts of majestically strolling around a savannah looking for looking for prey to basically hiding in holes and, and running up trees but but i'm guessing that that was more <laughs> was more the reality can you talk about the champawat tigress and the hunter the conservationist and legendary tiger hunter jim corbett jim, jim corbett's a really interesting character and he is an interesting character historically but also um in terms of literature because he wrote a number of books about his sort of exploits he was a I, can, I, I think it'd be fair to say a reluctant tiger hunter. Um, he was a British army officer and did various sort of things in India. And he grew up in the forests and had an almost sort of a supernatural ability to track these animals. Um, he was very, very at home in their environment. He knew he spent an awful lot of time watching tiger behavior. He knew an awful lot about tigers and leopards and was able to approach them very closely, which is very useful. Mm -hmm. um, and he was increasingly called to tiger attacks. I mean, some of the, and some of these animals were taking out hundreds of people. Um, and they still do actually in parts of India. We, we still get we still get tiger attacks and leopard attacks on a very regular basis. And J Jim Corbett was called to a number of these things and sort of developed a reputation for being able to to hunt them down. And it's it, yeah, it's well worth reading some of his books. It gives you a flavour for India at the time. It gives you a real flavour for some of the the horrors actually of what these attacks mean, but also what what he went through to try and stop them. I mean, some of these sort of tiger hunts they would go on for months he'd be up in the forests he'd be setting up traps i mean they would occasionally find the remains of people that had been eaten and he would set up a sort of blind across them so sometimes these animals come back sometimes they don't he'd be tracking them through the the, the, the sort of forests and everything so it's a very um it's kind of it's you know it's quite an adventurous thing to to read but actually once you read it with a bit more of a sort of maturity and a sort of sociological sort of bent you realize that you know these people that are living in india at the time were being depredated by by these big cats on a reasonably regular basis and, and some of these cats were accounting individual cats were accounting for large numbers of people it's it, it was quite sobering to me to realize as i was doing that that radio phil documentary we started talking to people in india and i I joined a WhatsApp thread um, and, and suddenly started getting these photographs, you know, almost on a daily basis of, you know, this tiger's killed a 12 year old, here's a six year old child, here's a lady that was killed, here's a guy that was, was killed, here's what's left of him. Um, and, and you realize that actually a lot of people around the world are living with wildlife in a way that I think many of us um, in the Western world particularly don't really understand. Um, and so when we see, I, I see this outrage on social media quite frequently, for example, a, a group of villagers killed a leopard a few weeks ago and lots of people and they're going, oh, you know, they shouldn't be allowed to do that and calling them all sorts of names under the sun saying these people were evil. Well, I actually, you know, knew the backstory to that and what this leopard had done. And, you know, those people were protecting themselves. And, and yes, it is a great shame that leopards and people and tigers and people come into these conflicts. Mm. It is not just a, a case of, you know, a modern phenomenon of us going into their habitats, actually, you know, it's, it goes back through, through history as well. Um, and I think we need to start understanding that, that lots of people that live in places with wildlife, um, not just in India. I mean, you think about elephants in Botswana, for example, they, um, they kill uh, dozens of people every year. Um, you know, this is a very real problem for a lot of people. It's, it's difficult, I think, sometimes to walk in people's shoes or to think about how other people think if you've not been to those areas or spent a bit of time and you just see a, you know, a photograph on social media and you respond to it. And, you know, that response is a genuine, heartfelt, emotional, very well-placed response, but it doesn't necessarily, as I kind of reflects the earlier point, it doesn't necessarily reflect that complexity and that background. And I think that's something that, that in in the world today because we have this this inundation of information this potency you know this complete sort of concentration of information that just comes out of the kind of information hose constantly i think it's very very difficult for us to maintain that kind of critical edge almost impossible actually mm -hmm. to do that all the time and i understand you've explored solutions for those in, in the poor rural populations living in close proximity to large carnivores for driving down attacks on humans and predators that are caught up in the struggle for survival can you talk on this um well i can talk on it yeah it's not actually something i've worked on um that type of um human conflict human wildlife conflict reduction but i can talk about some of the things that people do um as usual they're usually quite simple 
um, um, at, at the beginning because there are some things that you can do that are relatively sort of low-hanging fruit. So one thing that's been very successful is changing the way that, that um, cattle herders, for instance, uh, keep their uh, keep their cattle at night. So produce making and allowing people to make lion-proof bomas, for example, which basically like sort of temporary um, corrals for for wildlife. Um, that's been quite successful because most of the problems come from from lions getting cattle and then people killing lions out of retribution or out of fear but also lions becoming habituated to being near villages and then starting to take people so that's that's been quite successful i know in tanzania for example um there are sort of lion guardians and and, and people that are employed by conservation projects to go around talking to people about lions, educating them about lions, working out where these lions are, trying to um, scare the lions off if they come near villages, for example, um, which can be very effective. Of course, it's very time consuming, but that, that can be very effective as well. Um, general, general education about things. Um, certainly, uh, it's an unfortunate fact that many lion attacks in certain areas, and I'm thinking about um, areas in Tanzania where um, someone I interviewed was telling me about, are often younger men, um, drunk, walking back from, from bars. And they'll be, you know, they'll be walking back drunk, and, and they're easy pickings, of course, for for, for a predator. Wow. So that type of education can help. So quite a lot of these conflicts can be reduced actually through some fairly straightforward interventions and measures. Uh, but of course, it's not always going to work. Um, elephants, I know, elephants can be dissuaded from going onto crops. Uh, people have used beehive fences, which I know can work in some places. Uh, experiments with things like chili ropes. There may be some frequencies of sound that they find unpleasant. Um, there may be some uh, other noises, although of course they're intelligent animals and they're also pretty determined and they may well get used to those things. But there's lots of work going on in all kinds of places looking at ways to, to reduce those conflicts, looking at ways to stop humans and wildlife interacting in ways that, that ultimately will end badly for wildlife, but actually in the short term often do also end up badly for people. And, and I think that's, you know, that's something we need to, we need to bear in mind, but it's, yeah, it's, um, it, it is an ongoing, ongoing work throughout the world actually to do these sorts of things. Well, thank you for sharing your insight on that because it's so easily for us to be emotionally attached to those issues, yeah. but yeah, we are so detached and have no clue what's going on. It is. And, and that's, I think, and that's a problem because actually, yeah, it's, it's, it's wonderful. Actually, we want, you know, we want people to be emotionally attached to the natural world actually, because when you're emotionally attached to something, you care about it, but, but, caring about something and then understanding the best way to protect it is not always, uh, you know, these things are not always mutually inclusive. And or I think in, in lots of cases, um, particularly in conservation, it is always more complicated than, than you imagine. But I think we have, we have to have that, that caring about people. I think that, that often it's mistaken. There's a mistaken belief, actually. I, I know I've, I've had this accusation thrown at me on Twitter and I know other people have too, that somehow because we're advancing a more complex argument, because we're saying, you know, actually trophy hunting does have a place at the moment. We don't have a good alternative for it. People will turn that around, reflect it on their own emotions and then basically say, well, you don't care about wildlife. You know, you can't possibly care about animals the way that, that I do. And, you know, my answer to that is actually, no, I don't care about animals the way that you do. I care about animals in a different way because I care about animals in terms of their ecosystem function, their habitat and so on. I don't I don't care about them in terms of um, a, a sort of a Facebook post that, that shows some individual lion that's been killed. What I care about are the posts that those people don't see, but I see because I'm in different groups of an entire pride of lions that's been poisoned because they were, um, you know, raiding cattle or two or three lions that are caught in snares with their guts hanging out because people have been, you know, snaring them because no one's looking after the wildlife in those areas. And I think that that is one of those problems where we're actually in so many of these issues is what's so frustrating isn't it in so many of these issues we actually all really want the same end result right we're all actually on the same side but you end up getting mired and sort of dragged into the weeds and and sort of sometimes actually into the gutter um you know fighting about these things in the detail but actually we do all need to step back and, and i think realize that yeah we are all on the same side here it's just we, we, we might be we might be somewhere apart in terms of our acceptance of certain methods. Now, I started Primalosophy because it blends evolutionary science, which I think is the greatest tool for understanding the universe and people, and ancient philosophy because it's our greatest tool for living a virtuous life. Does the evolutionary lens also serve as a sort of guiding philosophy in your life? It kind of does in a sense that I think that that if you think about things, the, the beautiful thing about evolution and natural selection is that there's a logic to it. Mm -hmm. And 
it's 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 a it's a very powerful lens that logic that that idea that if something is is succeeding at that point and is able to produce copies of itself whether it's an idea you know there's some Dawkins idea of the meme um, which has become a meme of itself um, or whether it's a genetic basis or, or whichever sort of system you're looking at that that mathematical logic of it is is very powerful now I'm not sure that I would say that I necessarily use it to you know, guide my life in that sense but I do. I do like the fact that in in the back of my mind, I've got that that evolution, natural selection kind of logic. The the beauty of the scientific method, that five step point, right? You see something, you ask a question about it, you formulate a hypothesis, you come up with some predictions, and then you test it. You know those five sort of parts of the scientific method, that beautiful kind of logic of natural selection. It, it for me, it feels nice to have in your back pocket when you're looking or thinking about aspects of the world. You know, can you despite what I was saying earlier about complexity, actually, you know, can you sometimes break it down into these simple blocks and find a way through? And I think that that side of, of things, that sort of clear thinking that comes through there can be a really good way to sort of reset your mind. If, you, if, you, if it's getting all a bit complicated, you sort of step back and think, well, hang on a minute. You know, is there a beautiful four-step process here that I'm missing? Mm -hmm. Quite often the answer is no, but it's valuable to go through that journey, I think. And it helps us understand our animal behavior. And although we often forget it, we are animals. Or as H.G. Wells puts it, we are unnatural animals. <laughs> yes. And I think, I think for me, I think that's something that is so easy to forget, but also so sort of almost cliched that we forget about it. It becomes this weird thing where we both, we're both very aware of it and we're forgetting it all the time. But yes, I think that's, that is an important point, I think. In terms of using the lens of evolution to understand some of our behavior overall and you know some of the things that I go into in the book, I think I think it can be powerful. And I think for some people, not, not maybe for everyone, but I think for some people having an understanding that some of their behavior or some of their you know, physical position or whatever situation that they're in actually has some echo in the evolutionary past can actually be quite powering, I think. Not in the sense of well, it's not my fault, you know, evolution did it. Not, not in that sense, but in the sense of, well, hang on a minute, that's quite interesting. So possibly the way I'm feeling this or the way that I'm, I'm experiencing this actually is because this could have been a, an issue in the past. I, I, for me, I find that quite um, interesting. And I know, you know, others do. Um, I, I talk in a book about a way of um, uh, some of the, the therapies people use for problem gambling, where they explicitly talk about the evolutionary purpose of, of gambling. And the idea of being risk averse and 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 then being um, very high tendency to tank risk, um, the idea of those reward pathways in the brain and, and why the the flashing lights and noises of of slot machines are so powerful and things like that and 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 for some people that can be a very valuable part of their of their therapy having that understanding as to why they're in that position and actually mm -hmm. some of the evolutionary background gives them gives them the tools and perhaps the strength I suppose to to try and tackle them and I think. For me, I think that's quite interesting. Um, I, I think although it's quite complex, the, the links with diet, for example, it can get quite tangled. It's not quite as simple as well, where, you know, we're famine adapted and we put on weight and fat. But I think actually having an understanding of our physiology and why we are where we are physiologically, I think for some people could help. Yeah. in terms of of their eating behavior you know what, what they're eating and, and and their behavior around food but obviously it's not not going to help everyone well said yeah these evolutionary principles can either empower us to make informed decisions or they can give us excuses to go on living an unhappy and unhealthy life yes and that, that is interesting isn't it the fact that <laughs> that you could have two from the same information have two very opposite outcomes actually um, one is, well, it's not my fault and nothing I can do about it. It's my genes and, and I'm going to give up or, oh, that's interesting. It's my genes. Hmm, maybe there is something I can do because, because I'm, I'm greater than that. I think that's, that's a really interesting sort of facet of, of this type of approach. But, but I guess it's quite important to, to have an understanding of, of what type of person you're dealing with or what sort of person you are, if you want to take that approach. Forged by natural selection and honed by evolution, humans are perfectly adapted machines for a world that no longer exists. 
that you know that's the sort of premise of the book but i think you know we also as i sort of talk about in the introduction we also always have to realize that we are massively successful right mm. we are amazing at what we do and what we do at the moment appears to be taking over the planet you know we are the most globally dominant species that you know we, we have we have affected the way that the planet looks we've got things that are in space we are moving away from our planet we can do the most incredible things that, mm. that have come about you know because of the brilliant sort of evolutionary kind of mixed of perfect storm almost of our phenomenal brain you know probably the most complex thing in, in well certainly the most complex thing in the known universe it's a, a phenomenal organ that we are barely scratching the surface of understanding we've we've got these wonderfully dexterous hands which uh, enable us to manipulate our environment we are a decent size right we can we can build fires it's very hard to build a fire if you're you know one foot off the ground or if you're too big suddenly you've got to knock down every tree around you we're kind of ideal for all this stuff and 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 of course we evolve language which is a function of our brain and social behavior and all of these things pile together to have made us incredibly fit for purpose actually but also of course the flip side is we have massively altered the modern world i think in ways that are incredible even over the last decade actually i mean even you know, i'm talking to you on zoom and we're having this this conversation which which five years ago would have been some sketchy skype line and and 20 years ago would have would have probably not really have worked very well over the phone you know these huge changes in our in our landscape i think have happened so quickly that, that we, we find ourselves lost and that's kind of the premise behind behind unfit for purpose but obviously you also you know we also have to accept that we are phenomenally successful Exactly. And that success is the reason why we're so disconnected from nature is because we were <laughs> yes. successful enough to escape the brutality. Yes. And, and to do it in, in such a way that, that inadvertently really creates new problems, which actually um, make <laughs> sort of exploit chinks in our in our evolution which which would have been useful at some point you know um i mean we talked earlier about sort of confirmation bias and things well all of these mental structures that let us fall into those traps would have of course been very very powerful for for group behavior and to allow us to be successful at fighting off the predators we were talking about earlier or or building city states and coming up with the, the sort of wonderful revolutionary uh, change in our lives that was agriculture so yeah all of these things are sort of I, I guess it would be it would be disingenuous to call us a victim of our own success because you could look at us and say well they're not really victims at all but but in this modern world we do have these kind of lifestyle problems which are clearly linked to evolutionary echoes from from our not even that recent past our evolutionary heritage that once set us up for survival is now clashing with our modern environment and setting us up for failure. So we evolve in this environment where we are the hunted, we are prey more than predator. And when our stress response was activated, it was for a good reason. Stress was the inspiration for unfit for purpose. And throughout our evolutionary timeline, stress used to save lives. But now we're dealing with these constant low level or what you call micro stressors that can slowly kill us in barely noticeable ways. Can you talk more on some of these micro stressors and how we respond? Yeah, I mean, so it's an interesting one. Let's let's rewind a little bit. So we're talking about the the stress response. Fundamentally, what we're talking about is that adrenaline burst that gets us out of trouble, and has probably saved. Um, certainly, mo I would say probably everyone has been saved from injury and possibly death for, as a consequence of that. Um, and of course, you know that goes back to our ancestors, and not just our our recent ancestors. I mean, this is a response that that's preserved throughout mammals, um, and you can even find similar things in some invertebrates. So this is a this is a really deep rooted part of our evolutionary history that, that's that's amazing. Um, however, in order to to boost our system in such a way that we can get ourselves out of trouble, we, we set all these hormonal cascades off within our body, which aren't actually amazingly good for us. You know, it's a great it's a great quick fix. But if you start building these things up in your body, we know that they have negative effects. Um, what we're only just beginning to understand is, is what the, the negative effects are over the long term of constant, very small stresses, which seem to be almost a feature of, of the way that we live in the modern world. I mean, if you uh, if you're not well, a, a quick Google hit will show you how concerned people are about stresses. But if you think about your, your own, you know, your own lives and, and whatever, it, it's quite possible to wake up feeling stressed because you didn't sleep very well and then of course we've got the almost constant um social sort of life if you like or electronic virtual life 
with all of these platforms going on, which which we've all become very, very used to very, very quickly. Um, WhatsApp, you know, I've had five messages from WhatsApp since we've been talking. We've got Twitter, we've got Facebook, we've got Instagram, we've got other platforms, we've got email. Um, and then, of course, we've got these quite complex lives now. You know, it's it's all very well. Yeah, we're sure we don't live in fear of predators. You're right. And that's that's good. Um, but equally, um, our ancestors didn't live in fear of the tax man or live in fear of our insurance running out or our mortgage payments or our job security or issues to do, you know, complex political issues that we're constantly worried about. I saw Michelle Obama was talking today about how she she's, you know, she's suffering from low level depression because of the current political climate that that we're all living through you know all of these things i think are, are very modern world problems which cause us these stresses and cause the release of these stress hormones and, and what we know is that in the long term that they're bad for us and what we don't know is exactly how bad and there's a whole sort of ecosystem of research looking at the impact of of low level stress and and, and long-term stress on us physiologically and, and and what we can show already is that it's not good um but of course as we start to mature and as we find people who are going through this as sort of almost modern world natives you know people that were born perhaps you know 20 years ago and have known no different you know no different world or the people that are coming you know my kids now you know will be going through a very different experience than even i did you know 30, 40 years ago as a child. Mm -hmm. So I think it's this very, very rapid change and the, the ability of the modern world to produce these just potent stresses all the time um, that has of course sparked a huge industry in terms of stress busting, uh, but also has these potential medical, medical sort of um, uh, sort of costs that, um, that, that we're only just beginning to understand. And, and at the moment, for example, there doesn't seem to be any particular link with cancer, but lots of people believe that we're heading in that direction. We know there's problems with heart disease. We know there's problems with um, more general things. Um, depression is one thing that's linked to it. Um, insomnia, uh, um, impotence, all kinds of other things can be related to that, which of course have their own stresses related to them which then feeds back into this sort of stressful spiral of uh, of the modern life and and i think certainly since writing that chapter and finding a bit more about it i've actually taken a lot um uh, a, a lot of steps to to not be stressed because i was realizing i was running around doing all these things and, and i was i was thinking this is cool i'm busy i'm doing all this stuff and we, we have this sort of uh um, almost kind of a false idea I think that you know being busy all the time is good and actually when you when you think about it, it's not good it probably just shows that you're either not saying no to enough things or you can't organize your time properly yeah. so you know, I've really taken taken steps now you know I make sure I go out for a nice walk every day I, I go and spend some time um, you know away from screens I'm, I'm about to go on holiday for a couple of weeks where I'm literally going to turn off every screen around me and just try and get away from that side of things and just I guess de-stress and 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 certainly writing that chapter I, I was really surprised to see so many sort of very old school kind of medical places you know like the NHS advice line here which is very sort of you know all about medicine and what tablets you should take and how many you should take and what the symptoms are and all this kind of stuff where you get onto stress and suddenly it becomes really quite different tone you know they're talking about you know have a bath go for mm. a walk have some time to yourself it's it's very it's a very different form of language towards medicine which i i don't think you were even seeing in mainstream medicine you know 10 years ago um and i think that's because we're really waking up to the fact that that our modern lives are, are perhaps not quite as, as rosy all the time as we think they are and most of us don't want to return to this way of life this caveman way of life because it's hard and brutal and you often hear people say that i don't want to live like a caveman and i'm like well no shit but our not our bodies still require the same species appropriate nutrients and the same time in nature for this stress relief we still require the same inputs as we did in hunter-gatherer times yes and i, I find a really interesting narrative that's, that's emerging now after you know during covid and I don't know if it's a global thing, but it's certainly been quite big here in the UK and, and, and you know, we're actually doing a bit of research into it as well, is lots of people have been finding um, or re-engaging, or in some cases, I think, engaging for the first time with nature. Mm -hmm. um, going out there, they're talking about their gardens. People are trying to find out about what birds are. There's lots of, um, lots of information about that now appearing. People are going out for walks and appreciating things. And there seems to be this general sense that actually you know, COVID being being stuck in your house, but but only being able to go out occasionally for walks. You know, people have been grabbing that opportunity 
to do that and, and finding great solace in it actually and strengthen it. But I think what's really interesting, and I, I'm speaking from my own perspective here, is that because we're being forced to work at home, we're actually having to manage our time in a much more efficient and effective way. And you know, for example, this Zoom meeting, you know, we, we, can, we can have this conversation and you can record it and it's done and dusted in about an hour. But if, if, if we were in the same country and we were gonna have this conversation, we'd probably try and have it face to face and then we'd all have to go somewhere and I'd have to get a train somewhere and you'd drive somewhere. And we, we'd almost probably spend you know, five or six hours doing the same thing. Yeah. So I found that, that, that it's, it's forced me to, to change the way that I work. And as a consequence, it's actually freed up time during the day. And I can think, do you know what? I've got an hour free. I'm going to go. I'm going to go for a walk. Um, there's beautiful birds around here called skylarks that nest in the fields. They're, they're only out and about and active for a month or so. You know, they're amazing. I didn't realize we had so many around here because I've never gone for a walk in the day where I live. It's always like a weekend evening thing or whatever. And, and, and I found that that is, has been very, very, um, interesting over the current crisis is that maybe it's sort of forcing us to kind of you know we're not becoming cavemen again right and living out in the fields and stuff but but actually <laughs> fields is an unfortunate one because of course we've had to have had agriculture but no we're not living out in the wilds anymore and we're not going and, and sort of foraging berries so much but but we are getting outside and i think people are finding that very very valuable COVID is forcing us back into nature, but we're also seeing a mismatch now with COVID-19 in that we're social animals and the isolation is taking a toll on our mental health where more people are dying from depression and suicide than the virus itself. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. I don't know the figures here for, for that, but certainly that was one of the massive concerns with with the sort of in inverted commas lockdown approach. Um, which varied, of course, across across different places. Um, yeah, it's 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 weird, isn't it? So one of our great strengths from an evolutionary perspective is our sociality, um, but of course, living together, um, particularly the sort of living together that that our brains allow us to do now, right? We're high-rise buildings where we're literally on top of each other. Um, very high-density modern cities, you know, huge um, density of people. We love to travel. We've got the ability to spread ourselves and anything we happen to be carrying all over the landscape. Um, all of those things which have been hugely successful for us, that, that social behavior, that that exploratory behavior that we love so much is actually now our, our complete Achilles heel with a, with a respiratory um, infection. When you think about it, when we, when we communicate with people, we, we, we like to be face to face with people and we talk and that's perfect for the spread of a respiratory disease. Um, as we know from the common cold and from flu and other things, you know, COVID is, is really just, just, just one in a, a line of them. But, but on top of that, I mean, I think a, a big, a big issue of course is, is the fact that we've, we've got these amazing brains that develop these phenomenal things called aeroplanes, which very rapidly <coughs> meant that this could get around the world. And you know, instead of taking years and years and sort of dying out somewhere and what's never hearing about it suddenly, Oh, that's cropped up in Italy. Oh, hang on a minute. It's in France. Oh, it's in Spain. Hang on. We've got a case in Britain now. It's in Sweden. Now it's in the States. Now, you know, it's, it's almost like this was unfolding at that speed because of course, you know, we are a global species and, and we love to talk and we love to socialize and we love to get around. And, and that is, I mean, you know, the, the, the sort of coronavirus that causes this must have been rubbing its little spike proteins together in glee really when it when it hit upon us <laughs> so yeah. we're a much better host than whatever it was in before the social aspect is just fascinating to me because we'll always be tribal by nature it's just that now our tribes come in the form of nations and states yes and and i think we we don't always identify with that very well do we we're not always very thoughtful and realize that that is the case um and also within nations and states of course we are seeing now i think more um divisive lines forming with with different groups that are are quite ill-defined um so and, you know here in the uk there was the, the brexit vote and, and that set up a very um ugly sort of tribalist kind of approach where you know half the country pretty much had voted one way and half the country had voted another and you know it was often divide i mean it would be simplistic to say you could break it down this this far but actually you more or less can it was divided largely through age but also through demographics and and uh, and other issues and and so that often cut across families 
so you would have you would have families that, that sort of one generation voted one way and another voted the other um here in the uk with our with our different countries we've got you know england scotland wales and so on they voted differently you know, scotland voted to remain england voted to leave and so we we get this kind of tribalism developing and and that of course then starts breaking down into even smaller groups so it, it's much more complex now than it would have been when effectively you had you your immediate family your wider family your, you know your tribe and then kind of everyone else now it's kind of all of that plus complicated political lines certain things that you might think of to do with you know sports teams can even become tribal in, in a way that you know can become quite violent um all of those underlying and then you've got bigger political decisions then you've got sort of nation decisions and and i think all of that is quite difficult you know we're a very good social species and we've got a lot of brain power for sorting these things out we're very good at doing that but god that's a bit much isn't it to, to, <laughs> to which, which tribe are you in at the end and and that's of course where things like confirmation bias where false information fake news and all of that can really find a, a root and and get that kind of lever in and divide people up and and we've seen that so effectively over the last decade or so and certainly over the last five years we, we used to have to band together and perform b these basic war chants to fend off predators and to get our food. But now we do that to fend off the opposing team. I mean, have you seen the All Blacks and rugby when they perform their war chant? This is their take on ancestral war chants. <laughs> yeah. And uh, I mean, when, when you look at humans, particularly human males displaying um, and then and, and you, you think of it from a sort of biological perspective, it's just like watching any other animal display. Um, you know, I, I'm sort of doing it now. Right? You, you put your arms out and you make yourself look big. You puff your chest up. You, you kind of get in people's faces. You stand up. That is exactly what you see with even, you know, blackbirds kicking off in the back garden. Mm -hmm. um, you see it. You, you see it with with almost any animal you care to mention. You, you see this type of display display behavior um, you you hear bellowing and shouting so you know red deer are famous for this they they have this bellowing competition because the louder and the longer and the deeper they can bellow for the bigger they are and stronger they are so they do this bellowing and then if that doesn't work they start doing this sort of walking and then you know, literally sizing each other up and if that doesn't work they start charging at each other and and you see that really reflected in, in human behavior and you're right these things are are display behaviors um you watch cctv footage of of fights and then things that emerge outside of nightclubs and stuff and, and you can see that display behavior played out no different from watching any any mammal anywhere it's exactly the same thing and you can see it's ritualized it's associated with things like you write chanting and so on which is a ritualization of doing that a way of showing that you've got solidarity and that you're part of a group you're not going to be singled out as an individual you know that one in all in mentality which of course would have been extraordinarily useful at certain points in our um, ancestry um, now perhaps somewhat misguided most of the time because unlike most animals we seem to be willing to take the risk of fights and combat um, despite there being very limited rewards in most cases um, you know, you see lions, for example, you know, male lions will, they will certainly tear lumps out of each other if they have to, but they really don't want to do that most of the time. Because even if you're a very big, strong, powerful lion, and you're facing down one that's determined to have a go, that's considerably younger and experienced, you're still facing something with massive claws and teeth, and you're probably still going to end up with scars to, to talk about. And I think, you know, that's one of the differences that you tend to see our sort of modern human behavior has those echoes of evolution but then we've got all these complexities of of our intellect going over the top of it and we tend to see we we, we can certainly see people making some very poor <laughs> very poor evolutionary decisions um in in these sorts of situations yeah and when you see two modern men fighting they're not fighting to the death they're instead sort of mimicking what they've seen on tv yes which is very interesting actually and and i, I started reading around some of some of this stuff and and it's absolutely right when you when you see those types of of kind of flailing around outside of a nightclub. It is, it is imitating violence, which is glamorized in, on television and in films. It's generally rewarded in those media too, right? You know, I'm, I'm just finishing watching the, the, the whole run of 24. And, you know, that gets more complex at the end, but, but Jack Bauer is a hero in those films and his behavior is, 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 is psychopathic actually, <laughs> but, but nonetheless he's rewarded and he's, yeah, and, and you watch this and you think actually this is, it's not surprising people take this on board and, and yeah, the violence that you see for, for sort of most people just kind of, they're just basically that is displaying that's gone a bit far. Um, when you see 
you know, actual violence where people are really trying to hurt each other. It's, it's, it's sickening. Um, it's, it's a hideous thing to see because suddenly you realize that, that it's not, it's not this display anymore. It's turned suddenly these red deer, you know, they're not bellowing at each other. They're trying to kill each other. Mm -hmm. And yeah, that, that side of things I think is, it is, is difficult because we of course do have this evolutionary history. Um, we are capable of violence um, and violence has been undoubtedly of great use to us at some points in the past. It's undoubtedly of great use to us at times in the present. Um, you know, some situations people need to defend themselves. They need to, you know, defend their family and so on. But we live in this complex modern world where, you know, those, those situations are rare and very difficult to read. And the complexity of all of these things, suddenly you get, you get people kicking off over the most trivial of reasons and, and people die. And tragically, we see these sort of you know, one punch deaths and, and people don't realize, I, I realized this when I was researching that section of the book, I think a lot of people think, Oh, you know, someone's punched someone so hard that they've, you know, they've killed them. No, actually what's normally happened is they've punched them. They've fallen over backwards and knocked the back of their head on a table or on the floor, mm -hmm. you know, and they, they've died. And, and that is, that is people imitating behavior, displaying, doing all of those animal behavior things, but it, it, it has turned out very badly. And of course, in the complexity of the modern world, that isn't something you can walk away from. That is a life changing thing for everyone involved. And, and I think the violent side of our behavior is something that, you know, lots of people have written about, um, Stephen Pinker, perhaps most famously, um, and people say we're we're more. It's funny actually. You can find uh, people very confidently saying we're more violent than we were. We're less violent than we were. There are no more violent than we were. Um, the reality, though, is that no one's arguing that we're not violent, and, and that violence isn't a problem in the modern world. And I think that is something that we we really do need to we really do need to get on, on top of. And we have to understand that, that there is an evolutionary um, echo to it. Men, particularly kicking off with other men is a form of display it's a form of resource holding whether that resource is territory whether it's females whether that's you know, potential mates if we look at this through the animal behavior lens we have to understand that much of that behavior when you look at it with the sort of cold eye of of, of, a, of an animal behaviorist you can see all the same patterns that you see in the natural world and i think that's something that we really we really do need to to address and speaking more on this animal behavior, the last thing I wanted to bring up, because I don't think it gets enough attention, is our relationship with dogs. I mean, we accept that these incredible creatures are just our loyal companions, but rarely talk about our history together. Do you have any insights on the journey from apes and wolves to humans and dogs? It's, it's a really interesting topic. Um, the, the, the simple answer to that is I, I don't know a huge amount about it. But what I do know is that I keep seeing sort of papers coming up that are reevaluating it. And I realized, and we covered this in Science in Action at one point, I realized this is a really big area of study, and, and or, or at least a very popular area of study. And I think it hits upon what you, you said earlier. The fact is we do have this very close relationship, particularly with dogs. Um, and we've we've domesticated them some time ago. We're still not quite sure. There's these sort of differing uh, hypotheses whether they were hanging around. There's this idea that they were hanging around sort of the dumps and getting our waste and spoils, and we eventually sort of made friends with them. There's the idea that perhaps we 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 captured, we you know, killed their parents and captured their their cubs, which feels a more glamorous and sort of um, self-affirming hypothesis. I think I'll probably suggest the hanging around dump scavenging hypothesis might 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 lend some weight and, and i know people yeah. are doing all kinds of genetic analyses now um, that i'm not on top of but yeah it is it is a very interesting area one of, one of the i think if i was going to redo the book now um i'd certainly do a chapter on pandemics and, and disease i sort of touch on it in the book occasionally but but i'd certainly highlight that a bit but actually our relationship with animals it would be a very interesting one i, I think it, it doesn't quite fit with the sort of unfit for purpose aspects although you, you could i'm sure argue around it but i think our, our relationship with animals is very important because of course the biggest jump the, the biggest change in our environment that we've ever had really was when we when we cottoned on to the seemingly quite simple fact that we can grow our own food yeah. and that we could keep animals and, and, and develop dairying and, and have meat on, on, on hand. It took a long time, you know, it was about 12,000 years ago it started to take hold. It wasn't an immediate thing. It spread throughout the world relatively slowly, but it was a very, very big change. And, and at this, you know, part of that is our relationship with animals. And 
undoubtedly once we started keeping sheep and goats of course and then we had dogs herding them and we have dogs as companion animals we also have you know start to develop relationships with horses um, particularly as draft animals um, before we were riding them you know they were pulling things around we've got interesting relationships with cattle throughout the world and, and sort of buffalo and things um so i think that relationship is very very interesting um i mentioned her earlier actually alice roberts i, I talked to her about our, our early um experience as being prey i forget the name of the book but she came out with a book quite recently that, that examines um various different animal species in their evolutionary and sort of archaeological relationships with humans let me quickly whilst we're since, since i can do this and hopefully keep talking let me just find out what the name of that book is because i've forgotten what it's called it's a very very good book well that sounds really cool and the reason why i bring it up is because i do think it kind of fits with the concept of correcting the mismatch between our environment and our um our bodies because we do the same we see the same thing in animals i mean when we remove animals from their natural environments and put them in zoos and we know we have to try to recreate their natural habitats and feed them a species appropriate diet but then we don't do this with our pets i mean dogs are carnivores and we deprive them of these essential nutrients yes it's a um you're you're, you're right and actually what we tend to do with with zoo animals are huge area of study now is this idea of enrichment you know how can we make their environment more enriching for them how can we give them the environment that that is ideal and and, and we're always talking about how we can um, match that very artificial environment to the sorts of stimulation they would get in a natural world um, we don't generally apply that lens to our own our own lives mm -hmm. uh, and you're right the way we treat our the way we treat our pets can be quite bizarre actually i mean we can end up with very strange relationships with companion animals i mean you think about sort of people carrying tiny dogs in handbags i mean that's one side of it but you're right we're I, i've seen many an argument play out where people go no my dog's vegetarian dogs don't need to eat meat um you know they're not natural meat eaters and stuff and you think well actually you know let's let's rewind that you're making a lifestyle decision to feed your dog a diet that that probably through the introduction of you know, artificial chemical, well, through chemical supplementation of that diet, you're, you're able to get them through. But, you know, let's, let's, let's think about what dogs actually eat. Um, you know, they do eat all kinds of things, for sure, but meats are part of their diet, um, um, certainly. Uh, that book, by the way, is called Tamed, 10 Species That Changed Our World. Um, definitely worth, a, definitely worth a, a read. But, yeah, the, um, I, I think that relationship, the relationship between us and the species that we we have tamed um, is a really, really interesting one and, and undoubtedly has had a huge part to play in the way that the modern world looks and works and, and the way that we function. Um, and whether or not it will have such a, a part to play in the future, I don't know. I mean, we're trying to get away from, from, from using animals in that way. Um, yeah, it'd be interesting to have this conversation in 200 years time. Will we all be eating artificially grown protein? Mm -hmm. Will we be consuming, for example, more insects, which is something that a lot of people get very excited about. Um, I find it more difficult to get excited about that because I think in reality, we've got a long way to go culturally in most countries to accept the consumption of insects. But of course, one of the things people are looking at is, is breeding insects to make animal food. Um, so I think there's a lot of very interesting developments in terms of our relationships with animals as, as we go through the next well, the next few decades for sure but let's let, let's put our we're always wondering about what's going to happen in 10 or 20 years time Let, let's think about the bigger picture you know 100 to 200 years time right. where will we be what will we look like you know in terms of our lifestyle and we will look the same but what will our lives look like what will our lifestyles look like i think that's interesting and exciting because when you look 200 years ago our lives and lifestyles some of it was very similar right we still had political structures and we still had people living in families in houses and going out to work and so on but so much has changed just in that time and when you think of the scale of change over the last 50 years and the fact we're still on that trajectory i think yeah we well, well unfortunately it's a question i'll never know the answer to <laughs> um, but unless we unless we perfect um living much longer than we do but i think it will be very exciting to know. I, th I think at any point in human history, it'd be very exciting to know where we are in 200 years time, but it feels like now would be a particularly exciting time. But perhaps everyone thinks that. Perhaps everyone thinks that they're living through the most exciting time. I don't know. And that's something that I often hear you advise is to approach the future like a grown-up with a more mature mindset. Yes, and I, I think I kind of make this analogy that, that we're, 
we've gone through quite a lot of our history and i mean right the way back sort of as children in sweet shops right the world is basically an infinite sweet shop and we can just keep picking and choosing and doing whatever we want but actually we've really we've really started to realize and i think it really is starting to hit home that that we we have to be the grown-up now you know the the world isn't an infinite sweet shop but if we manage it correctly if we think about ourselves and think about well hang on we eat too many sweets we're not doing ourselves any good and we're depleting the sweet shop you know if we can think about that more as an adult and less as a child um i think we do have a chance um and i think we are reaching the point where we're certainly getting the realization that we need to do something about that um we're not always doing it but we are trying and we're seeing lots of, of movements and lots of sort of pushes towards that and you know perhaps we have reached maybe we're not quite adults yet but I, I think i'm hoping that we're at least teenagers well put adam all right so if you'd be so kind to share what's on your shelf are you reading anything good right now um i'm actually just finished um reading a, a book which i really enjoyed it was um it, it's a book on it's called dangerous snakes of africa um and it's a it's a really really interesting read um it's basically a, an identification book of loads of snakes but the beginning and end has lots of stuff to do with our cultural relationships with snakes and lots to do with um what, what they call in the book the hidden epidemic of snake bites and things and and it's an area that i've become quite interested in looking at the human wildlife conflict side of things with big carnivals i'm also interested in exploring some of that with some of the smaller wildlife that we tend to overlook that are actually incredibly important for biodiversity and for ecological functioning i think snakes are one of those things that very often are killed on site in many parts of the world, um, even by people that, that, that probably should know better. Um, and that causes all kinds of trouble, but also um, you know, snake bites. Snakes actually account for about 100,000 human deaths a year that we know of, possibly more. Um, so looking at some of that kind of tension, um, one of my other hats that I wear, I'm involved in a project, which a citizen science project where we monitor wasps in the UK and, and wasps are loathed. I mean, people hate them. And, and I, I can't say I blame them sometimes, you know, you're standing outside trying to enjoy a beer and a, a hot dog and these things are all over you, right? But mm -hmm. equally, they're incredibly important. And, and I'm, I'm really interested in how we can try and sell these things to people, how we can change people's mind about species, at the very least, make, make it so that instead of reaching for the insect spray or instead of reaching for the, you know, the snake spray, the shotgun, whatever you choose to use, um, we can just step back and think, okay, is this an immediate risk to us? Do we have to behave this way? Could we actually do something better? That's kind of, yeah, that, that, that's the sort of, um, yeah, that was the last book that I've, um, I've just finished actually. Well, thank you for sharing that. I'll have to check that out. And it makes me think of a book called the cosmic serpent by Jeremy Narby. Have you read it? No, I haven't. Very similar in a way. It just makes you think of why do we have this innate fear of snakes and mm. their role in our evolutionary timeline? It's pretty cool. Yeah, it's really interesting, isn't it? Um, I, 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 there were sort of experiments where people take monkeys that are born in, in zoos and sort of um, they'll suddenly try and put a hose pipe in there to, to water something and these monkeys will give an alarm call that's unique mm -hmm. to snakes and they'll climb up trees and things. And, and then, you know, you have this kind of really interesting, I mean, let's be honest, being afraid of snakes is actually pretty sensible because although, you know, most of them are harmless, some of them really aren't. I mean, some of them are really not. Where, where, where we go in South Africa, I think six of the 10 most dangerous snakes have been pulled out of the tent that I normally stay in. And you know, you've got things like a black mamba, that gives you a bite. You really need to get to hospital very, very quickly, or things are gonna go south very, very fast. Um, yeah puff adders you've got boom slangs you've got even rock pythons that can that can cause problems so actually it makes sense right to have these to have these fears it's like when people are scared of spiders i i, I don't blame them. I, i'm not a big fan of spiders either and okay here in the uk we don't really have any species you need to worry about that's not the case everywhere some of those things can be quite can be quite um nasty so you know i, I kind of yeah i think exploring those phobias and those fears actually and, and why some of us can overcome them with some species. I have no problems with snakes whatsoever, and yet spiders I'm not, not such a big fan of. Um, some people never overcome them. Some people never seem to have them. I think trying to understand a little bit more about that relationship with the natural world could really help us, actually, when it comes to what sort of messages we get out there and how we can sort of change people's minds a little bit about how they view the, the natural world side of things. For sure. And then last question for you, Adam. If you could have a drink with anyone in history, who would you choose and why? Yeah, no, I thought about this for some time, and, and unfortunately, I'm a biologist, and it always comes down to the same, the, the same thing. I think it would have to be Darwin, and I think I'd like to sit down with Darwin and have a coffee at the point 
I think it'd be cool to be on the Beagle, right? And then, you know, sit down and have a coffee with him. But that's not really going to work because you can't suddenly appear on a ship and not, you know, questions are going to be asked. But I think um, when he gets back and he's writing the book and going through some of this turmoil about, about, you know, some of the ideas he's coming out with and the sort of heretical thoughts that he's having and some of the tensions that he's having with his religious beliefs and stuff, I think it would be really cool to sit down with him with the knowledge that we have now and, and sort of try and, you know, you, you can't you can't tell people in the past too much, can you? But it would be it would be really interesting to to sit and chew the fat with him, and perhaps um, perhaps uh, yeah, in, in, encourage him that he's on the right path. I think that would be that would be my my dream historical cup of coffee. Great answer. So if people want to find you, you're on Twitter at Adam Hart Science, Professor Adam Hart on Facebook. I'll have links to Unfit for Purpose, When Human Evolution Collides with the Modern World, in the show notes. Where else do you want people to go to find you? Um, yeah, that pretty much uh, that pretty much covers it. Um, if they want to email me, they can always find my email. I'm very I'm always happy to talk about these things and to to engage with this sort of stuff. You know, it's um it's it's yeah, it's an interesting area, and you never you never know where some of these conversations go, right? It's it's really interesting. That one of the great benefits of the modern world, yes, it might cause us some problems, but actually the connectivity that we can have through some of these electronic media is just incredible. And you know, I've Twitter, social media and things. I'm, I, I've met people from across the world that, you know, I consider friends now who I've never actually met in, in real life through these things. So I think it's a really, yeah, do, do, do reach out and get in touch if you want to. Well, this was a really good time. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I really enjoyed our conversation. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. All right, everybody. Thank you so much for listening. Be sure to follow me on social media at Primalosophy. And if you want to subscribe to my weekly newsletter, Sunday Goods, you can find the link in the show notes. Shikoba.